Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. Years ago when I, uh, I, was, I was speaking at the, the marriage getaway and two days before the getaway, so I think the getaway is on, uh, started on Thursday, this is probably Tuesday. I kind of threw my back out and I called Dr. Matt and I said, can you guys have a chair on the, on the platform? Because I can't stand up. And he said, come to my office right now. And he worked on me, he adjusted me, he zapped me with this like demonic thing, I don't know, but it was, it was all helpful. And then he laid his hand on my back and he, he prayed that God would restore my, my alignment. And I woke up the next day feeling like a million bucks. And then two days ago on Friday, I'm, we have this little tradition in my house where we, we throw the dog in, in my kids' beds because if I wake them up in the morning, I get a different response than the dog does. And I was picking up our dog, Hank, and I was putting him down and I twisted wrong and something just went out. And I went, oh no, I gotta teach in two days. And there was this feeling like, it's okay, it's okay. It's okay. Like, I'll go get adjusted, I'll, everything will be fine. Then I woke up the next, the next day on Saturday, I wasn't fine. And I started to get really, really anxious. And I started to be like, what man, is, oh, I gotta call like Pastor Mike and say, I don't know if I can teach tomorrow. And, and I just felt like, like God was saying to me, Brian, have you learned nothing in the last, like, do you think that the only way I can use you is if you feel your best, if you feel like you're in control, if you feel like you look good? And I just said, okay, I'm about to teach on weak is the new strong. I'm about to teach on how his strength is made perfect in our weakness. I said, you know what? If I'm sitting down, and then I woke up this morning, it's early, I like to get up early. I like to kind of go down to my office and, and, and talk through and pray through the message beforehand. And as I was walking around, I started like this. And I noticed within like 15, 20 minutes, my body just opened up and I just felt like there it is. Like he just needs us to trust him sometimes, huh? Just like, just, just step anyways, just wait. And then just see what I do. If I tell you what I'm about to do, it won't be as powerful. Just, just trust me. Yeah. This is, uh, this is something I've taught a couple of times and every single time I teach it, it's a little bit different. So like, who knows what we're about to hear about today. But um, when I say weak is the new strong, uh, it's something I think our culture is a little bit uncomfortable with because we really want to believe it's our strength. We really want to believe it's our image, it's our power. It, we create our own security, our own safety. And Jesus models something wildly different. And it's amazing, if you, go, if you go back to where did this idea come from? Where did the idea come from that, um, that I need to protect myself? I, need, I can't trust something bigger than me. I, ha I have to trust myself. And it goes all the way back to Genesis. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of the story. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm gonna read a, a, little, a little section from Genesis here. And you guys can, do they hang out the whole time? Okay, yeah, you guys, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much. I feel really bad. I feel like I just kicked off these incredible musicians. <laughs> but if you go back to the beginning of the story, in Genesis chapter three, it's a story that a lot of us are familiar with. We usually call it the fall. 
And it's a story where it's a pretty, pretty pivotal turning point in human history where we're cruising along and Adam and Eve have got it pretty good. Adam and Eve spend their days hanging out with Jesus, hanging out with God the Father in the garden, and that's their life. And God gave them one rule. God gave them said, just eat whatever you want, do whatever you want. You guys are, this is true freedom. It's what real freedom is. And just, there's this one boundary. Just don't eat of that fruit in the middle of the garden. And there's a moment in chapter three. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And what's, what strikes me about this moment, I think, I think it's super easy to gloss over. There's a lot that God is actually revealing to us about how we operate in fear, even in these just maybe 10 sentences, 10 verses in this, in this chapter. Is that it's, it's important for me to remember that when the serpent confronted Eve, and he drew her attention to the tree, she was familiar with the tree already. She lived in the garden. We don't know how long they lived there, but it was long enough to name all the animals. That seems like a task. So this was normal life. And the serpent comes up and he says, did God really say that you can't eat from that fruit? So she's familiar with the tree. For some reason, for some reason, the tree has not been a problem for her up until now. And the woman said to the serpent, We can eat from the fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it or you'll die. And this is where, this is where I think my revelation when I was studying this, where I think, oh, I think, I think temptation is about the thing. I think that when I, when I get veered off course, that the thing that veered me off course was the power of the thing I'm being tempted by, um, not tithing, hoarding my money, seeking my own security, boasting up my own image, right? The thing that, that I'm tempted by. And the, the, I think one of the powerful things about realizing that, G, that uh, Eve was already familiar with the tree is that the serpent understood that if I just go up to Eve and I say, hey, you know how God said we shouldn't eat from the tree? Let's do it. If he just said, come on, take a bite, I think Eve would have said no. I think Eve would have been like, but every day I, I walk with the Lord in the cool of the evening. I, I, I feel peace. I feel connected to him. I, I trust him. Why, why would I not follow his directions? So the serpent doesn't go for the fruit. He says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So if you just pause for that sentence and you take it in, for God knows, who's the, what is the subject of that sentence? Is the subject of the sentence the tree? Is the subject of the sentence even Eve? The subject of the sentence is God that the serpent understands if I want to get Eve to violate somebody that she trusts, to violate that relationship, I have to break down trust. I have to insert the idea that God isn't trustworthy. And so he comes up to her and just by asking a question, he inserts this idea, are you, are you sure 
that God is protecting you and not preventing you from having something good? Do you know for a fact that God has your best interest at heart? Maybe God is insecure. I don't know. Maybe he's, he's just really controlling. Maybe like you look at all the other things, all the other stuff in your life, you think, man, maybe they have it better. Maybe these boundaries are actually not protection, they're prevention. And he inserts a simple idea that God can't be trusted. And this to me blow, blew me away. This is so powerful. Because in that, in that sentence, in that question, fear is introduced into the human experience. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that fear itself, like the anxiety of um, walking, walking close to a ledge and your body can feel, man, if I fell, that would be bad, right? I'm not saying that that's necessarily the direct byproduct of sin, but it is likely to think that there was never an experience in Eve's life where she felt fear, where she felt the fear that God can't be trusted. This is a brand new experience to her. And so the woman said that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. The tree looks different all of a sudden. If you break my trust with God, the thing that God is saying, don't touch that, it's gonna hurt you, all of a sudden, it looks different. All of a sudden, it looks peeling. All of a sudden, it looks pleasing to the eye and good for food. And she took a bite, desirable for gaining wisdom, and she took and ate it, and she gave it to her husband, who was standing by complacently, not protecting her, who was with her, and he ate it too. And all of a sudden, peace, freedom, real freedom, the kind of freedom that we can't, I don't even think we can imagine it because when we think of freedom, we think of, we think of legal shots hell freedom, right? We think of the fact that I'm, I'm allowed to practice my faith, I'm allowed to pursue my dreams. The freedom they lived in was the freedom that they didn't know what it meant to be self-conscious. They didn't know what shame felt like. They didn't know what it, they never wondered, what does that person think of me? They never asked those self-conscious questions. That is true freedom. And then she ate of this fruit. And by violating her relationship with God, if God can't be trusted, if my creator isn't necessarily good, then what makes me believe I am good? How do I know that I'm worthy if he's not trustworthy? Does that make sense? And there's this moment where fear is introduced into the human experience for the first time. And it makes me think, man, there was a, there was a season in my life where I was really young. We moved from San Diego up to Northern California, uh, which is enough to ruin your day. That's enough to, to put you in a bad mood. And, and I was pretty upset with it. It was, it was a result of my family changing. It was the second divorce my family had gone through. I was really young and I was really upset. I was tense. I didn't know what to do with this anger. And we went up to Northern California. I got connected with friends that were not healthy, healthy friends. And so about 13 years old, I started to experiment with substances and I, I started to hang out with people that were really destructive. And you know, it was weird. I remember, I remember that time and I remember laughing a lot. And I remember, I remember talking about how I enjoyed these substances. And then obviously God just wrecked my life later. He, he saved me. But it was interesting because about, I don't know, this is several years ago, this is like five, six years ago, I was going through some adrenal issues and I was having a hard time sleeping. So a doctor said, okay, I want, this is a little unorthodox, Brian, you don't, you've told me that you don't want to use any kind of narcotics to help you sleep. Uh, so why don't you try this cannabis um, extract? He said, you won't feel anything weird. Just this will help you sleep. And I was like, okay, I'll try this. I don't know if I took too much. I don't know what happened, but 
I, re- I just remember, I remember my wife looking over at me. He's like, Brian, you should go to bed. Like, you should go lay down. I'm like, everything slowed down. And what was so strange about that experience for me was it was the first time I had had that experience in, I don't know, two decades. It was the first time I'd had the experience of being like inebriated or intoxicated in a long time. And I remember thinking, I don't like this feeling. I feel out of control. I feel, I feel, I feel inhibited. I don't, I don't feel like I can like reach from my wife. I I feel worried about, do I sound weird? Are my words slurring? Am I talking at a normal, am I talking at a normal speed right now? Like you're, you get really self-conscious. I remember thinking, you know, so interesting about that. This is, this is exactly what you see in prescription medicine is that when you have somebody who gets addicted to prescription medicine, the problem wasn't so much the medicine because we have a lot of evidence. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for prescription medicine. We have a lot of evidence that says like if grandma gets hip replacement surgery and they put her on some hard narcotic, she's going to use it to manage the pain. And as soon as she's ready, she wants to get off. Why does she want to get off? Because she has bonds in her life, connection in her life that means something to her that she wants to be mentally and emotionally present to. And so when pseudo comes in, fake comes in, her brain says, no, I don't like that. And as soon as the serpent was able to break relationship with God, all of a sudden, pseudo looked good. And they got pulled away. So the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good. And there's this, uh, there's this experiment that was done almost 70 years, over 60 years ago. Uh, and, and from this experiment, I don't think most people know this. I didn't know this until I was working in addiction. There's an experiment that basically all of our, our kind of cultural attitudes about how addiction works and what it is and what's gone wrong, which is mostly, which is mostly the idea that, that, that um, addiction is a problem of a chemical coupled with bad moral character. So that's, that's kind of our cultural attitude towards addiction. I think it's changing, that's exciting, but that's been, that's been our cultural belief system for the last 60 years. And that came from this experiment that was done um, I want to say like in the 1960s. And basically what the experiment was, very, very simple. Um, a doctor took a white lab rat, he put it in a cage all by itself, and he gave it two forms of water. He gave him pure water and water with cocaine in it. And if you gave that rat enough time, the rat would try both kinds of water, and 100% of the time, no matter how many times they did this experiment over and over again, every single rat got addicted to the cocaine. 97% of the time, the rat used the cocaine to the point of killing itself. And so they looked at this experiment and said, whoa, look at that. Look at the power of that chemical. The problem with addiction is the chemical. And then like 40 years later, this is like 20 years ago, another guy named Dr. Abraham came along and he looked at that experiment and he said, you know, there's something really important that's a discovery there. Like we, we need to have a real fear and reverence for these chemicals, of course. But there's something interesting about the experiment that strikes me is that the rat is all alone in the cage. And rats are mammals, they're social animals. So he built what is now famously known as Rat Park, with lots of interconnecting cages and lots and lots of rats that can have rat communities and rat fun and have rat sex and just do all the things that rats want to do. <laughs> and he put the same two bottles, the same test conditions, cocaine water and regular water. Only 3% of the rats even tried the cocaine water a second time. Zero killed themselves. 
And what it becomes so clear when you look at that second experiment and you take it in context, you realize addiction is not a chemical problem. It is a connection problem. And we are living in an epidemic of isolation where we want to numb and we want to convince ourselves that we don't need God. And, and Genesis is saying, man, it's not, it's not even, it's not even person-to-person connection. That even that, will, it will feel like your tank is full, but even that leaves you with a critical unmet need is you need to be connected to your creator. Our brains crave authentic connection and only when they're denied authentic connection does false connection fill the bill. So if we continue a little bit further, then the eyes of both were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings from themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is their routine, right? And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden, but the Lord called to Adam and he said, where are you? And Adam, once again, taking responsibility for his life, (laughs) said, I heard you and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And hiding now enters the human experience. So first, first we lose trust in God and we start to numb. I'm going to look at this thing that looks bright and shiny and it looks delicious and I'm going to try and numb the pain that what felt safe in my relationship with God no longer feels safe and we start to numb as a society for the first time and then God comes and he he wants to draw close to us and he says, where are you? And Adam says, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? because I realized that I was naked. I broke relationship with you and it changed the way that I saw myself. Once I I lost trust in you, I lost trust in my goodness too. And shame, which which is fear metastasized, It's a unique brand of fear, enters the human experience. Uh, Shame is actually, if you you look at the way that our brain handles emotion, like on the full emotional spectrum, shame is actually the one emotion your brain doesn't know what to do with. It knows what to do with joy, it knows what to do with excitement, it knows what to do with all the, it knows what to do with anger. It's not always the most helpful response, but it knows what to do with anger. It knows what to do with um, healthy fear, which is like visceral fear, right? Like if I'm walking down the street and, and a dog starts barking at me and chasing me down the street, my body knows what to do with that. My prefrontal cortex, which is like the part of my brain that reflects on what is the dog feeling? That part of my brain shuts down. I don't need that part of my brain right now. And the limbic stem lights up and I start to run away. Unless you're Polly, you probably just fight the dog, I would imagine. (laughs) But our brain doesn't know what to do with fear, with shame, because shame is the fear that I am not good enough. It's the fear that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. And so what it does is it takes the same threat response, the limbic activation, fight or flight, and it applies it to my own identity. And we go into this, um, this very consistent entourage, whenever you feel shame, you see numbing, hiding, and what does the man say? Who told you that you were naked, said the Lord? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman. And then he doubles down, he gets real bold. He says, the woman you put here, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And this entourage of hiding, numbing, and blame, which are always present, some mixture of that cocktail are always present when we move into shame. 
a shame is, um, to really fully understand it, it's actually pretty important to juxtapose it against, uh, against its counterpart, which is actually a good thing. Shame is actually the dark side of something healthy. Shame researchers, the word that they use to describe the healthy side of shame is they, they use the word guilt. It's what our, our Bibles refer to as conviction. It is the, it is the, the rightful assessment that I violated my own value system. I've done something that has broken relationship with God. I've treated somebody in a way that I'm not supposed to treat. Or I said something dishonest. I, I took something that wasn't mine to take. I violated my nature and I feel guilt or conviction about that. Guilt and conviction are actually really helpful things because if I did something wrong, guilt is as an assessment of behavior, wrong thought, wrong action, wrong treatment. If I did something wrong, if I made a bad choice, I can choose differently. When I realize, oh my gosh, and you go down to the altar and you say, man, I, I have to confess, I haven't been truthful with my family, I've, I've said something dishonest. By saying that, I am actually standing in a, in a belief system that I can do something better. I can go be honest with my family, right? Shame is not an assessment of the behavior. Shame, if guilt says I did something bad, Shame says, I am bad. And it leaves us in a place where now we don't have any options. And so the first thing we do is we try and numb that pain. If we, if we, if we just follow this order, the second thing we do is we try and cover up the thing that doesn't feel good enough. And then the third thing we do when we're still sitting with that anxiety, that restlessness, we try and outsource it. And we're really good at blame, aren't we? I, I was actually, I was talking to my wife the first time I prepared this. I was talking to my wife, I was like, babe, I need an illustration where I did, I moved into blame. Can, can you think of it? She's like, oh, I got you, boo. She's like, yesterday. I was like, dang it, you're 100% right. And what had happened the day before, actually two nights before, what happened two nights before is we were getting, it was kind of towards the end of the night, I was playing with the girls, I was in the living room, Sarah's much more vigilant about the state of our home and she's amazing. She blesses us with this really great place to live and this clean environment to be in. And she said, hey, Ryan, would you mind doing the dishes? And I said, yeah, babe, I got the dishes. And she like, she knows me. So she like stopped and she made eye contact and she said, you have the dishes? You're gonna, you're gonna do them? I said, yes. Like, like I'm insulted by this or something. And I said, yeah, I'll do the dishes. I didn't do the dishes. So I went to bed. And I woke up the next day and I was getting ready for work and, and, I'm, and I'm like a little, a little frustrated. I'm, like, I'm a little like rushed and I'm like running around and my wife says, were you able to get the dishes done? She knew I didn't get the dishes done. But my wife asked me, did you? I'm like, oh no. I'll do them. I'll do them before I go to work. And so I go to the dishes really frustrated, kind of like irritated with her and frustrated that I'm, I'm like behind schedule and I'm rushed now. And I do the dishes and I get into my car and I drive about 40 minutes to work is when, I'm, when my office was further away from my house. And I got to the office and I was walking to my door and I realized I left my keys at home. So in 20 minutes, my first client's gonna get here and my keys are 45 minutes away at my house. And I'm locked out of my office. I'm gonna look like a fool. And without even having to think about it, the thought that went through my head was, thanks a lot, Sarah. Because I didn't wanna sit with the reality that last night I didn't keep my word, which left me in a position where I was rushed, which left me in a position where I felt like a mess and I didn't feel like I was leading myself well and now I'm gonna be embarrassed in front of this client and what do I wanna do? I wanna outsource that anxiety and I would say, Sarah, you carry this for me. This is your fault. 
Now, I'm probably not going to tell her about that, right? Because if I said that out loud, it would reveal that that's absurd. But that doesn't stop us from carrying the attitude, right? It doesn't stop us from like little seeds of resentment getting planted in our relationships. And we outsource it really fast. Our brains do it without even having to think about it. And it goes back to this. Shame and guilt have very, very different outcomes. In fact, shame, highly correlated. So if you were to see... uh, if you were to see a graph, a correlation graph, this is, this is based on the work of Brene Brown. So if you're familiar with Brene Brown, you can look, the, you can look this graph up. Um, things like addiction, uh, depression, uh, suicide rates, high school bullying, all of them are perfectly correlated to shame. The higher the shame, the higher the rates of those things. And interestingly enough, if you were to just translate it into our language, when you're assessing somebody, and you're assessing for how, what is their level of healthy conviction or healthy guilt. Meaning that when they, when they make a mistake, they feel comfortable going to the person and saying, dude, I, I messed up, I'm sorry, let me make this right. They feel comfortable owning that because there's not a fear of self. Inversely correlated, the higher the rates of conviction or what we, what we call conviction, what the researcher would call guilt, the lower the rates of all those things. And there's an epidemic of a displaced problem that we think the problem is oh, I don't believe in myself. I think there's a, there's a root system that goes even deeper than that. The problem is I don't believe in the one who created me. And it leaves me with a fundamental distrust of my own worth. Does that make sense? When we, um, in families, God grows us up. And in families, we also, we, we have moments where we realize, oh, I, I, I got that moment wrong. There was a moment um, several years ago now where, do you have any of the parents in the room, has anybody ever like, ooh, I did that too soon? You weren't you were ready. Has anybody ever, nobody? Oh, okay, thank you. These are pity hands, but I'll, I'll still accept them. I appreciate them. So like, this is quite a while ago. This is like six, six years ago now uh, when my daughter was about five years old, four years, five years old. Uh, we were taking her to Disneyland and at the time, I really loved Disneyland. And we were taking her to Disneyland, and there was a roller coaster there in Toontown called Gadget's Go Coaster. I don't know if you guys are familiar. As far as four-year-old roller coasters go, it's epic. Uh, it's the best one. And so we're going to Disneyland, and, and this is we've been before, but this is like, I'm thinking Liv, Liv's ready. It's been a while. She can do this. And I'm hyping up Gadget's Go Coaster. I'm telling her about how fun it's going to be, and we're going to do it together. And she's buying in. She's like all about it. And so we get all the way back to Toontown. She sees it, but she's still with me. She's like, okay, this looks safe. Yeah, as you, as you can tell there's some apprehension, but she trusts Dad. So she gets on. And what I really wanted to do is I wanted to capture a slow motion video of her first roller coaster experience. We had the first photo. Yeah, aw, you're about to turn on me. But my thumb didn't hit the slow-mo. It, it jiggled because the thing was shaking, so my thumb hit it and it just captured this image. Okay. You can take it down. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose all the moms in the room. They're gonna be like, I don't, I don't like him anymore. We process that a lot, don't worry. I'm a therapist. We, spent, we walked around Disneyland talking about how she felt and I'm really sorry, sweetheart. I thought you, were, I thought you would enjoy that more. I understand it's valid, that was scary. 
We've gotten back up to like Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know if we'll ever get back on Gadgets Go Coast. That trauma might, might run too deep. But what I love about those two photos, because as soon as I saw them, I'm like, oh, this is gold. What I love about those two photos is in the first photo, what do you see? You see joy, but what does that joy mean? That smile on her face means, I trust daddy. That's what that smile means. It means, Daddy's bringing me to do something super fun because daddy isn't a sociopath and he clearly wouldn't invite me onto something that's about to terrify me. And then that second photo is a moment we all know. We all know a moment in our life where the floor dropped out and something wasn't what we thought it was gonna be. And she's clinging to me strictly from proximity purposes. She probably does not wanna be clinging to me in that moment. She probably would rather be clinging to her mom in that moment. But it's that moment where disappointment hits, and probably worse than disappointment, the disappointment is so severe that it actually shatters trust. Like, man, I really thought God was calling me to start that business, or I really thought God was calling me to pursue this relationship, or I really believed that God had something good for me in this season. And then you go through loss, or you go through a moment that feels like exposure, or you go through something that feels like rejection, And it's not just the pain of the loss, it's the pain of what the loss feels like it means, isn't it? And that actually, our brain stores that pain in a very specific way. Our brain stores that pain in in a modality that we call trauma. Because in trauma, our our brain actually halts the processing the processing mechanism that, that we use with thoughts. So if I have a difficult experience, but I can tolerate it, like uh, I'm, I'm disciplining Liv and she gets really upset with me and she storms off and she's really mad and I'm really upset and I'm feeling defensive and then I'm like, okay, she's just overwhelmed. This is, kids feel that way. She still loves me. We're gonna be okay. What's happening is my right brain with that frustration and that anxiety, oh, Liv doesn't, she's not happy with me right now, is accessing my left brain. It's talking to my left brain, which, allows that pain, that emotion to be organized into a linear fashion and, I, and I'm able to make sense out of it. In trauma, the highway that allows right and left brain to talk to each other, it shuts down. And it reminds me a lot of the wall, the curtain that gets put up in the, in the temple when Israel sins, that a wall goes up in my brain and my brain says the reason this wall has to go up is because my brain believes I need the alarm system. That this pain and this fear is so intense that I need it to protect me in the future. And so we hold that fear, we, we preserve the alarm system until, until we have an unexpected experience of connection that creates enough safety for our brain that the corpus callosum stays online and we access that memory. Have you guys ever been talking to somebody and a memory comes up and all of a sudden you didn't even expect it but your eyes fill up with tears? What your brain is doing is it's engaging the natural healing mechanism that God built into it, and your brain is actually releasing pain. It's actually releasing an alarm system because your brain thinks it has access to the safety it needs, and it says, I don't need that alarm system anymore. I'm loved now. I'm capable now. I can trust God now because I was able to process this with somebody. And there's a moment, there's a moment in the wilderness where Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he, he gets tested and he's, he's tried for 40 days. And just FYI, just a Bible reading tip, anytime you read the word wilderness or the number 40, it's a story about trial. It's a story about being tested. It's a story about being developed through adversity. And Jesus gets pulled out 
into the wilderness. And there's really, there's this really surprising phrase that the story starts with. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Which if I'm really honest with you guys, that is not where my head goes when I find myself waking up in the wilderness. When I wake up in a, in a, in a situation that feels really scary to me, my wife is really hurt. You know, I, I don't know where revenue is gonna come from. I don't know how to pay for payroll. When I wake up in something really scary, the first thought that comes to my brain is not, the spirit is leading me into the wilderness so that fear that I'm harboring or, or the boundaries, this, this small prison that I'm trying to protect myself with, the security or the sense of uh, my own strength so that can be rooted out and I can step into deeper freedom. That's not where my head goes. My head goes, what went wrong? And by doing so, we actually, we, we kind of give, in this, in this context, we give the devil power that he doesn't have. If you wake up in the wilderness and you think I'm here because the devil pulled me off track, then we actually rob the power of God's sovereignty to say, you know, the devil only has the influence in your life that I permit or the influence in your life that you permit. And there's, a, there's times where I think we, give, we actually give the, we give the devil a lot of power he doesn't deserve, right? Like I'm going down the road and I get a flat tire and I get to my work and I say, the devil gave me a flat tire. The devil didn't give you a flat tire, okay? A nail in the road gave you a flat tire. The devil didn't make you eat the donut. You wanted the donut. But knowing that when we do wake up, when we do wake up in the wilderness and we're there, that there's temptation and there's fear and there's uncertainty. And we follow God's model. We follow Jesus's model. And what does it say? There's a couple of temptations. And let me just encourage you to go read them on your own time because I'm gonna, I'm gonna just for brevity, I'll just give us this first example. So we led into the wilderness. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came to him and said, you are the son of God. Does that, does that strategy sound familiar now? If you really are the son of God, if God really said that you were special, if God really said that he could be trusted, then tell these stones to become bread. And what is the devil tempting him to do? It's the exact, it's a mirror image of the, of the guard. Numb the pain, turn that pain off. Turn the stones into bread and numb that pain. Rely on yourself. And Jesus responds to him and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, and here's my feeling. I know that he is talking to the devil in that moment, but, but my heart, when I read that, I think, okay, what the Bible is really telling us here is pretty radical. It's pretty insane. It's, it's Jesus is being tempted. If that's hard for you, those, that's not my opinion. That's the word of God. Jesus is feeling uncertainty. Jesus feels fear. Jesus is being tempted. He wants to turn the stones into bread. When he speaks, I think he is speaking to his own heart. And he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by the words of the mouth of God. And he is declaring over his life, I hear you fear. Your, your voice is silent. I don't give you any power. God is trustworthy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely on him. He is for me. He loves me. He goes before me. I am safe. I am safe. He is telling himself that he's not alone. And I think the only way to really appreciate the power of the wilderness when Jesus goes out there is to read what happens right before. What happens right before God goes into the wilderness? Literally the verse before it says, and Jesus was led. It says, then Jesus came to Galilee from the Jordan to be baptized by John. 
But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but you come to me. And Jesus replied, let it be now, for it is proper to fulfill all righteousness. God's saying, I need to be a model. I need to show you what true humanity looks like. Let me show you. And he says, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. And at that moment, heaven opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am so pleased. And that's the moment. The very next words in the Bible is, and Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness. And that's what Jesus takes with him. He, take, he clings to this moment, the voice of his father in his ear saying, I love you. I am with you. I am protecting you. And the wilderness is not about, it's not about Jesus's power. The wilderness is about Jesus's trust. And it's what all our wildernesses are about. And so as we sit here on a Sunday, read the words of, of Paul from like from about 2,000 years ago. And he says, Dear Corinthians, I cannot tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness that you feel comes from within you. Your lives are not small, but you are living them in a small way. I am speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. And there's an invitation because God sent Jesus. He sent himself to become a human being, not just to show human beings what God is like. Jesus came down to show human beings what humans are like. He came down to say, I understand. I can relate directly to your pain, your fear, your guilt, the party that wants to go into hiding, the party that wants to numb, the party that wants to outsource that anxiety and blame it on somebody else. I get it, I've been there, but I also have a doorway for you to step through. He says, open up. If you open up, the world on the other side of that door is expansive. And so let me just give you three very, very concrete, very tangible ways that we need to open up. The first one is what the Bible calls confession. The first one is the power that we take back from fear when we speak fear out. And the word confession in the New Testament, it's a Latin word, it's in confessore. Those words actually mean con, meaning with. Fessore means to stand. So when God says, I want you to confess your sins to me, what he's saying, I want you to stand in agreement with me about who you really are. I know that you think you're their sin. You think you're your fear. You, you, you think you're that thing you're hiding or that, that temper that you lose. You think that's, that's not you, but I need you to come back to me. And by saying, God, forgive me. I'm trying to take control. What you're doing is you're saying, I agree with you about who I am. And I'm trusting that you're good. And you made somebody good, that I am something good. And there's two ways, there's two ways in the New Testament that God talks about confession. The first way is confession directly to him. An example of that is 1 John 1, 9 says, but if we confess our sins to him, God, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us. And so the two verbs in that sentence, he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse. That your spiritual life is actually made you new, you become a new creation. That, 
that it's a, there's something accomplished that we do not have the power to accomplish ourselves. Being cleansed or being renewed or what we call salvation it is the accomplishment of standing in the authority of the Holy Spirit, standing in the authority of God's sacrifice. And then there's a second thing he says. He says, confess your sins one to another in James so that you may be healed. If forgiveness is the work of the cross, if deliverance is the authority of the Holy Spirit, healing, growth, the kind of breakthrough that doesn't happen overnight, it happens over time, is the deliverance, it's the growth, it's the breakthrough that happens from obedience, from discipleship, from waking up day after day and trusting God in the way that you live. Healing is a byproduct of going to another person, flesh and blood, who knows God and saying, help me, help me stand in agreement with God about who I am because I lost my way. And you feel God holds your hands through that other person. And God's saying, you gotta understand, healing is vertical, it's also horizontal. Your healing is not complete until you've seen eyes look back at you and say, I see you, I love you, I'm with you. There's a term, that the next one I, I always, I always include is what I call accountability. And, and that word was actually really, that was a rough word for me when I was growing up. When I was in high school, I was told I had to have an accountability partner. And my accountability partner is that guy that I went to and I told him what a piece of junk I was. And I told him how badly I messed up. And I told him why I'm not, I'm not doing better. And then I was working with a fireman a few years ago. And he said, that's weird. We use that word too. In fire, we use the word accountability, but we don't use it as accountability to somebody. In fire, we call it accountability for somebody. See, in fire, we don't go into a, building, a burning building and worry about, am I being perfect? Am I doing this right? Am I meeting my brother's standards? We go into the burning building and we say, is my brother safe? Is he in my eyeline? When we leave, we don't leave anybody behind. And it's an accountability for that you can only find in a place like men's prayer or the altar when you come down and you say, I'm, I'm ready to face that thing. I'm ready to stand in agreement. We need to enter into relationships where we know people are gonna say, I'm with you. Let's do this together. And the last one is renewal. Renewal is not something that happens in a moment. Renewal, when Paul talks about it, is the work of going back to the Word of God again and again to where we pay attention to these automatic thoughts. Because addiction is a scary word in our culture, right? We think of addiction as these really extreme things. Everybody, everybody struggles with addiction. Addiction, if you define it in its most simple form, what is addiction? Addiction is the repetition of an ineffective behavior that could be a substance, a thought, fill in the blank, an ineffective behavior that has negative consequences. Does anybody in this room have some, have some automatic thinking that brings negative consequences, but we keep going back to it again and again? Like automatic thinking that leaves me angry and rest, resentful with my, with my loves. Automatic thinking that leaves me feeling like a victim or feeling really stuck in my workplace or in, in my ministry. All of us know what addiction is on some level. And when we talk about renewal, what we're doing is like, I'm gonna keep my eye on that stray thought, that thought that's out of alignment with God. I'm gonna watch for it. And every time it comes up, I'm gonna take myself back to the word. And just like Jesus, I'm gonna hold on to it. And I'm gonna wash my mind again and again and again until that becomes my automatic thought. So what I wanna do is I wanna just encourage you as you're sitting there and you're like, oh man, I know that. I know what numbing feels like. I know what hiding feels like. I know what blame feels like. Every single Sunday is a moment to respond. Every single Sunday 
is a moment to break agreement with fear and stand to confess, to stand in agreement with who God says that you really are. So I wanna pray for you. And then I'm gonna pass the, the mic to Pastor Mike. God, I wanna pray for every heart in this room and I ask for courage. Lord, I ask for you to empower us. I pray for every family. Lord, I ask for that, that the bondage of fear, the bondage of disconnection, the bondage of defensiveness, the bondage of, of blame shifting. Lord, in Jesus' name, I break those chains and I pray that you would infest those relationships with your love and your freedom, the freedom and the power to be vulnerable, to be seen by each other, to say, I am sorry, I reacted, I am not perfect, I love you, I wanna connect with you. God, I pray for every heart that you're stirring right now because they know, they know that a door has been, has been brought to their attention and you're inviting them to step through that door. Lord, I pray for courage and the empowerment in their spirit to stand up, to raise their hand, to pursue a person that they can confess this to and find the next step of freedom. It is only in your power, Lord. It is only in connection with you, God, that we even know what freedom is. We pray these things in your son's name. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.